Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode five. This is a fun one because in this episode, we're going to talk about the 1920s, also known as the Roaring Twenties. Now, that nickname isn't really accurate, but, but it's stuck during the years because the 1920s, they stand out compared to every other decade, really. There were so many things that were changing at this time, even as there were things that were staying very much the same. And that contrast was, was part of the controversy of that time period. But it was also a really interesting time period. Uh, you're talking about a time when we were richer than we had ever been before as a country. The middle class in the United States wasn't just 5% of Americans anymore, this token amount of just professional jobs. Now it was 20%. Now you could get a job in an assembly line in a Henry Ford plant doing relatively simple, repetitive work, but you were making $5 a day, which in those days was a lot of money. And you're like, I'm never leaving this job. I will work as hard as I possibly can. And because they didn't have turnover in their jobs, Henry Ford's production soared and his costs dropped, which means more people got to buy his cars. So he used assembly line methods and specialized labor among his employees, and he paid them living wages. And it revolutionized how we did industry in this country. But also on top of that, many of the workers at the time, not just in Ford plants, they had eight-hour workdays. They worked from nine to five. They would come home and they had like time off with energy left. They had some money to spare where occasionally they got to take a holiday to the coast or something, where maybe they could afford installments on a radio or, or one of the new appliances or even a car. And so more Americans were just living better. Now, I want to be real careful here because when we think the Roaring Twenties, we just think times were awesome and everything was cool. And that's not really true. Not at all, actually. Still, the vast majority of Americans, over 75%, okay, were what you would consider living in poverty still. The 1920s happened, and you didn't even really notice uh, any kind of prosperity among farmers, for one, or Native Americans, African Americans. They largely got left behind. But it was a time when technology was really starting to influence our lives, and the radio was part of that. You could buy a brand new radio back in those days for about $20, which if you're working in Henry Ford's plant, that's just a week's wages. That's, that's affordable. And a radio back then was a real, I mean, it was a piece of furniture. It, it was like four feet tall and you put it in your living room. It fit right nicely between the chairs and the sofa. It, it was a big piece of machine. And the assembly lines that were turning out radios started getting better at making them and also lowering the price some. So now I can get my news from a source other than a slanted newspaper. Now I can get entertainment for free just by turning on the radio dial. Now, if I wanted to listen to a baseball game, I can be living in the middle of Kansas and I can hear the Yankees play. I can hear Babe Ruth hit a home run. I can hear Charles Lindbergh fly solo across the Atlantic and hear his landing in Paris setting the record. I can hear it live across the radio. I can hear Seabiscuit defeat War Admiral. There's, there's all this stuff that I can bring into my house now, and it changes the way Americans live and the way they celebrated and, and got entertained. Well, there were other things happening. There was a lot of social rebellion during this time. Prohibition is the law for the entire 1920s. But um, a lot of people in big cities, especially, and in the Northeast, uh, they, they got around prohibition. They wanted to have a drink anyway, and it was really hard to get caught. There just weren't very many police officers. 
The Treasury Department was, or called Revenuers at the time, they were in charge of enforcing prohibition. And for the entire United States, there was only about one, about 5,000 of their agents. And so sometimes they called them prohibition agents or prohees, but they were way, way outmatched. There was just too many people willing to go around prohibition's laws, too many bootleggers, too much money, too much bribery and corruption, and too many people who didn't believe that prohibition should be the law. And so it was a fool's errand. They could never, ever put a dent in the illegal traffic. And so you would go to these speakeasy clubs. And I was telling my class about this in Prosser, the the speakeasy, the illegal bar in Prosser was the second floor of Beck's Company Jewelers. So if you've ever been in Prosser, that used to be Only's Furniture. And back in the 1920s, I believe it was a general store. But the second floor of that was a speakeasy. There's no sign out front. It's just the illegal bar that's in Prosser, and everybody knows where it is. Even Prosser police officers would come and drink there after work. It's that looked upon, you know, as just a social thing, of course. It's out of sight, so everyone can pretend it doesn't exist. But even in a small, very religious town like Prosser in the 1920s, people were willing to look the other way. Now, there's another element of the 20s that I love talking about, and it's perfect that it's also Black History Month, because let's talk about this this amazing thing that happened in the mid-1920s in Harlem, New York. Now, remember, Harlem is the northern part of Manhattan Island, traditionally known as the African-American part, and during segregation, for sure it was. But Harlem goes all the way back to the Dutch when they founded that city, Harlem with two A's, as a segregated city. Well, as an African-American section of the city right there, there's, there's black-owned businesses, there's black-owned restaurants, there's black theater, there's black music, there's black artist colonies, everything there. It's, it's a town where African-Americans got to define themselves culturally. And the Harlem Renaissance just accelerated all of that. So this amazing creative outpouring of, of black writers and musicians, um, uh, black actors and playwrights and, and painters... This critical mass is taking place in Harlem in the 20s, so much so that it's a magnet that's drawing these talented artists from other parts of the country so that they could all get there. Now, this is a really important idea to think about. When you have all of these talented, creative people that are now in the same nucleus, now in the same neighborhoods and clubs, interacting, becoming friends with one another, playing off of one another, what happens is it magnifies all of their creativity. Suddenly, they're not just the strange artist who happens to perform on the side, and I like their music. No, now they are learning from other artists and sharing what they know, and the explosion of creativity that happens is the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance, where for several years, African Americans now get to redefine what it means to be black in America and to do so on their own terms with no one else setting the rules or the oppression, even with segregation and Jim Crow still being the law of the land in those days. Okay, they still had Harlem and it was theirs. It was theirs. You had poet Langston Hughes, okay, who famously writes a poem called Black Like Me and talks about what it's like to live as a black man in America under segregation. And to be able to do that in the 20s, to just write this as... To, to white people as an audience and say, this is what segregation does to us. You've never even realized. And when you read his, his poetry today, when you read his writings and hear what he spoke about, 
it still rings true in so many ways. You can see the parallels. And that's both tragic, but also eye-opening as well. You had Louis Armstrong. And I'm going to talk about Louis Armstrong because that guy is just, he's, he's unbelievable. As one of the, the, the forerunners and the founders of the jazz movement. I mean, he came out of New Orleans as a young boy. And uh, when he was 11 years old, he got arrested for, quote, disturbing the peace. Really wasn't disturbing the peace, but it doesn't matter. He's, he's an African-American in New Orleans in the 19-teens, and that's just trouble. He, he just, he's headed for trouble with the law. And so he gets oppressed. They arrest him and send him to a juvenile home for wayward boys, right? They send him to the equivalent of juvie at the time. And while he's there, someone teaches him the cornet, teaches him how to play trumpet. And he's so good at it. He's so natural. He picks it up so quickly that, uh, that really quickly he starts to join local bands and and the guy who recruited him, a guy named King Oliver, which is another huge name in jazz, uh, he ends up replacing him in one of the local band leaders' positions. And then later, King Oliver is going to invite Louis Armstrong up to Chicago to play in his band. And then his musical career just takes off. And we're talking about a musical career that spans three decades. For 30 years, he was actively producing music and then appearing on television and then being parts of movies. His music just revolutionized things. Not to mention it was just really, really good. So, so when I say they formed black culture on their own terms in the 1920s, and then you bring back this jazz music and play that along as a soundtrack while that's happening and you can hear it. It's just utterly amazing. And so I just wanted to play a little bit. This is, this is Louis Armstrong and his, uh, a band called His Hot Seven. And he plays a song called Wild Man Blues. Louis Armstrong in your headphones today. Happy Black History Month and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.